right. Good morning, everybody, or good evening, good afternoon, good middle of the night, wherever you are, whenever you are, if you're watching us online, uh, welcome to you. Glad that you guys are here. Um, we are kicking back off, not kicking back off, I don't know if that's even a thing. We're resuming our study in the life of Job. The series is called Blameless, a study in the life of Job. Uh, so who here, be honest, is saying, yay, more teaching in the book of Job, more about trials and trials and suffering and patience. Um, yes, I, I'm going to bring it because I, this, this series has been one that has spoken to me so much, especially in this time of, of for our generation at least, it seems like unprecedented trials. Um, but we know in the history of mankind, there's really nothing that's new. It just looks different. But in our generation, I would have to say that this has just been unprecedented. So to jump back into this series, first of all, I should say welcome to our newcomers, to our visitors. Glad that you're here. Even if you're out there catching us online, we know we have a lot of new people catching us online. Um, And because of that, I want to go back in and kind of relay a little bit of the foundation for what we're talking about in Job. Because a lot of people aren't really familiar with Job beyond maybe their preconceived notions, right? And I would say if you stick with me, if you bear with me and really look for the nuggets of wisdom and truth that God has in this chapter, in this book, um, you'll find that I think there's more to the book of Job than we commonly think. It's not just about pain and suffering and a downer, just something we have to get through. I think it's foundational for our relationship with God. It's foundational for us to understand what this book of Job is trying to teach us to to have a right relationship with God. So if I ask you, like, just be honest now, what what do you think of when you think of the book of Job? What immediately comes to mind? Suffering, trial, pain, stupid friends. That's a little bit more of an in-depth knowledge of it, right? But on the surface, people are like, ah, pain and suffering and trials and the patience of Job is what we always hear thrown out there, right? Well, who, who wants to be thrown into a situation where all these things are happening to us? All of these are, nobody does. But we need to know what's going on kind of behind the scenes and how to really navigate those things in a godly way because all of those things do come our way. We don't get a say in that. They happen to us. And how do we navigate those in a way that still gives glory to God? Well, here's a spoiler alert. The book of Job doesn't answer all those questions for us. Now who's excited about getting into it? It's seemingly, in fact, the book of Job raises more questions, I think, than it answers. It just does. How can a good God not only allow but encourage sometimes bad things to happen to his people. Job loves God with all his heart, and yet we find God actually encouraging these bad things that happen to Job. Why is that, and how does that happen? And, and then that starts us to think, like, Job did everything right and still suffered. What chance do I have? And then maybe we go even further and say, how can I trust in a God who does that or more or allows that how can i trust in god why should i trust in him at all 
These are the questions that we have to reconcile in our mind before I think we can have that right relationship with God. So many people just immediately want to point to the bad things, the evil, the the things that still exist in the world and say, is there a God? I don't know how there can be. And if there is, how can he be all loving like you want to tell me he is when I see all these things happening? We need really to understand that. And if we don't, then questions like that trip us up. Like, I don't know. I just have to trust. And that is okay at a certain level to just have faith that God is good. But we need to understand why. That's what Job gets us into. So if I told you there was a completely different way of looking at the book of Job than maybe we have in the past, um, I hope you'd stick with me for that. Because I think that there is. These commonly held paradigms that we have over everything that happens. Um, We're taught basically from birth to see that pain is bad, right? Pain and suffering is bad. And the absence of pain is good. It just seems like common sense, right? The absence of pain is a good thing. A storm is bad. Calm is good. We should always seek out the calm. If there's a storm, we just want to get through it as fast as we can to get to the calm part. That's typically the way that our mind thinks. If you're in a trial, endure it and get through it as quickly as possible. And maybe more importantly, if you're going through a trial, it's because something has gone wrong in your life. You've either done something wrong or somebody's done something wrong to you. And that's why you're in this trial. What if I told you that wasn't always the case? See, we think God rewards obedience and punishes sin. What if that's not how it works in the kingdom? We start to think about this. Then if we think about it through this mindset of if something bad is happening to me, it's because I've either made a bad choice or somebody's done something or some some kind of sin or evil has come into my life, and that's why things are going bad. How do we then reconcile these ideas like this, like the book of James? It's our very first one. Just look at this scripture, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Now, if you're new, there's going to be a lot of scripture, probably more than maybe that you're used to. I'll read it to you, or I'll put it on the screen and make sure you have it. But if you've got your Bibles, follow along or make notes, and you can kind of go back and study this later. I want to encourage that. So James chapter 1, 2 to 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Who can do that? It's hard. It's hard. Even in the best of circumstances, it's difficult. So how do we reconcile, consider it pure joy? Okay, I want to consider it pure joy, but... It's because something's gone wrong that I'm going through this. So how do I do that? How do we reconcile? And here's where, here's what I'm proposing to you. God will use the trials in our lives to bring us to a place of desperation for him. To bring us to a place of of desire for more of him. Desperation to refine us into that reflection that we're meant to be, that that holy and precious creation that God made, that's what we're supposed to be. 
But we don't always do that on our own, especially if we're comfortable. If we're comfortable in the way things are going, we're not going to have that desperation to make changes. It's just the way humans are. We'll seek out that path of least resistance. But God uses that sometimes to nudge us, to gently elevate us, sometimes not so gently as we see in the life of Job, to this place of reliance and desperation in him, but then also trust that he can and will take us through these things and use it to refine us. So that's where we are. So now we're going to get into the, into the book here, into the chapters. We're going to do two chapters today. I want to do just a really quick recap for those who maybe aren't so familiar with what goes on in Job. There's two perspectives here. We see the book of Job opening up basically from a, a heavenly perspective. We see this conversation going on in heaven, and what happens is is God and the heavenly host. You can go back and look at our at our previous messages. They're on the website. They're they're on uh, any platform you're watching this on. But go back to chapters one, two, and, and get this set up here. But what happens essentially is that God's having a meeting in heaven. It's God. It's the heavenly host. The angels have come, and they're basically kind of lying out. They've gone out into the world, and they're kind of reporting back to God what's going on. Satan still has access to heaven at this point, and he's in there. And he kind of sneaks into the back of the room, sort of, and he's watching this meeting taking place. And at one point, Satan accuses God of buying Job's love. Satan says, Job only loves you because you've allowed him to prosper. Job only loves you because he's been blessed. He's living the life. He's, he's successful. He's rich. He's got a family and kids. He's got all these things. Why wouldn't Job love you? Now, we need to take a step back and understand. Most people think that Satan went out, grabbed Job by the collar, and presented him to God and said, can I have him? That's not how it worked. In the midst of all this, God actually points Job out to Satan. It's God who presents Job to Satan and says, have you thought about this guy? And that's when the challenge comes in. So that's important for us to know. Satan didn't just go out and grab Job. God actually took Job, chose him, and said, have you thought about this guy? At which point then we know Satan kind of runs rampant with this, but all through God's encouragement, really, to take a closer look at Job. I'm sure Job's going, thanks, God, for singling me out here. I appreciate that. Because from the earthly perspective, which is the other side of the story that we see, Job is, Scripture opens up by saying that Job is blameless. doesn't mean sinless. It's a fine distinction, but we need to understand, blameless does not mean without sin. What it means is that Job would get up, and if mistakes were made, he would repent for them. He would offer sacrifice for them. He offered sacrifice on behalf of his children. He did everything he could to be in a right relationship with God. He had good friends. He had a good business. He had a family. He had a home. He had many, many servants. He had, he had animals and flocks, and he had all these things. So he would get up every morning, and he, would, and he would live his life according to what he knew his relationship with God required of him. And that's why he's called blameless. So we know that it lays out that there's no hidden sin in Job's life. 
Okay, anything that he's done wrong, he has repented for and he's brought it out so he can remain what, what the term is just, he can remain blameless. The problem is now, in the midst of all this, in one swoop, literally one day, he loses everything. He loses everything. He loses his family, all but his wife, who he might as well have lost her. But he loses his family, he loses his servants, his livestock, he loses everything, and then ultimately he loses his health. Horrible condition comes upon him. This is where the pain and suffering, and I won't go back into that, but read, read the first three chapters if you want kind of a recap on what's going on there. Now, in the midst of all this, we know Job is a successful businessman, well-known. He's got three friends, three pretty well-to-do friends who are from regions farther away. They're kind of trading partners, and they hear about this. And they agree, they come together, and they agree, let's go visit our friend Job. Let's go visit him and encourage him and help him through this trial that he's going through because he needs us. So well-meaning, they come together and they go there. When they get there, though, they've probably discussed on the way, what are we going to say to him? How are we going to encourage him? And then more importantly, they're probably saying, why do you think this happened to Job? Why do you think he's going through all this stuff? Their conclusion that we infer from Scripture and from the conversations that come after that is that they decide he had to have done something wrong. He had to have sinned against God, and he's being punished for that. So when they get there, they've got all this. They've already got their script of what they're going to say when they get there. They don't bother to ask Job, so tell us what happened and, and explain and what's going on. They get there, and immediately they decide, okay, we need to implement our strategy here, which is getting Job. Number one, he's got to repent of the sin in his life, and then God can bless him. So first and foremost, let's identify the sin. Job can repent of it. The problem is there isn't any. And Job says that. Job, there, there's nothing in my life that I need to repent, nothing I can think of. I think, as far as I know, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. And that doesn't sit well with his friends because they have to. In order to fit their paradigm of the way the world works and the way God works in the world, they have to be able to prove that there's some hidden sin in Job's life and that's what's causing all this. If they can't do that, what do they have? They have, they have to throw out everything they've thought about God and how he works and just go, well, I guess we can't understand God which is kind of the point of the whole book here. But his friends don't like that idea. None of us like not understanding things. We always seek to and we want to understand why things happen, how things happen, our role in how things happen. Sometimes that causes us problems. A lot of times that causes us problems. So that's where we are. Go back and catch all the messages for a, a, a more in-depth recap on that if you want to. But essentially... Job's friends, Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz, take turns. They basically take turns stepping up and berating Job. One of them will stand up and they'll say, you've sinned. This is why you've sinned. This is what you have to do. You have to repent. You have to do this. And Job goes, but I didn't. And then so they step back, and the next one steps up into the breach and starts berating Job. Okay, that didn't work. Let me try a different tack. So his friends keep coming all these different angles, trying to get Job to admit to this sin that's not there. And after three rounds of doing this, Job's starting to waver. He's starting to waver a little bit. He hasn't failed, but he's starting to waver. He's like, maybe there is something that I'm just not seeing. 
He's admitting that possibility, but he's struggling. It's a struggle in his head. I, I know what I know, but maybe there's something I've missed. And after his friends continually beating up on him, he's in this place where he's starting to waver. But now, after three rounds of this, okay, we've gone back and forth with the friends and Job's retorts here. Job now gets to this place where he's like, you know, all this stuff you're saying, you guys, is, it's not true. It's not working. I know that it's not true, and I'm going to trust in God. This is where we get to this turning point in the whole book of Job, where rather than this back and forth, Job's like, you know what? I know what I know, and I know how I've acted, and I know how I've lived my life, and I haven't been perfect, but I know that I have a relationship with God. And so he gets this new kind of a resolve. He sort of comes off the ropes and starts going back at his friends. So the question that we all have to wrestle with here is one that Job has kind of come, at this point, Job has kind of had this, this epiphany, and he said, you know what? I'm going to trust in God despite my circumstances. I'm going to trust that God is still with me and God still loves me, what I see with my eyes and what you guys are telling me, notwithstanding, I know what I know in my heart and I know that I'm right with God and I know that I'm gonna trust God whether I understand it or not. That's something that I think we all struggle with is whether I understand it or not. That's the hard part to get to. It's one major reason why we study Job's life so much is this idea, can I trust in God despite the fact that bad things have happened to me, continue to happen to me, and probably will still happen to me? How can I still trust in God? That's why we wrestle with this. So let's get back. And last time we checked in on Job, this series before Easter when we ended up there, we were in chapter 22. And Job's friend Eliphaz kind of the ringleader of the three friends, is asserting to Job, he, he comes out and he basically asserts to Job, God can't possibly care about you any more than he cares about the rest of us. To, to God, we're all just insects, and he says maggots we are. Why would God even care? He says this, Job 22, verse 2 and 3, Eliphaz says this, can a strong man be of use to God or a wise one be useful to himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you're righteous or gain if you make your ways blameless? He's basically saying, what does God care how you live? Your, can you possibly be of any benefit to him, whether you're good, bad, or in between? Why would God even care? And this is this fundamental misunderstanding that his friends have, and a lot of people still have this understanding. Why would God care? about you at all? Why would he care if you're good or bad, but even in bigger than that, why would he care at all? What difference could it possibly make to God how you live your life? So let's get in and find out. Job's done talking with his friends now. We're, we're done with this back and forth, other than just a little chirp from, from Bildad that we'll see next week. Um, he's done, and now basically you can just hear Job. He's talking out loud. He's kind of directing his directing his thoughts to the heavens, sometimes directly to God, sometimes just to whoever wants to hear. And he gets into this. Job 23, verses 1 and 2, starts out this way. Then Job responded, Even today my complaint is rebellion. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. I'll leave that up there for a minute. I want to point something out to you. 
Um, I use the New American Standard Bible, NASB it's called. All translations differ somewhat. And it's not that one's right and one's wrong. It's that they all come about their translations of ancient languages from a different perspective sometimes. And this is one of those where I think it's important to understand this. Job especially, being the oldest book, Job was the first book that was written in the Bible. Now Genesis, we know, comes first in the Bible, and it's the oldest as far as the time frame. But the first one that was written down and put into Scripture, the first one, that's Job. Okay, Job's the oldest book in there. (coughs) Excuse me. And it was written in this language that essentially is called Paleo-Hebrew sometimes, meaning like an even more ancient version of Hebrew. And it's this kind of mishmash, mongrel combination of Aramaic, Phoenician. Phoenician itself is a combination of uh, Aramaic and Canaanite. It's kind of this mongrel language that, that has evolved in time. Eventually, it became Hebrew in its modern form, but not until about 300 B.C. The Hebrew that we know now didn't really come in until about 300 B.C. It was all these different dialects and languages coming together. And so there's a problem with the translation. It's hard to translate. There's nothing directly to compare it to, which is why scholars struggle so much to translate it accurately. So, for example, this very scripture, the same scripture, if you have a King James Version, the KJV, it reads like this. Even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. Okay, the NIV reads, even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. And the ESV, English Standard Version, says, today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. So it's all, all these different fine details, but it can change the meaning of the Scripture. This is why Pastor Gabe taught last weekend, study the Word. Study. If you read something in Scripture and you go like, I don't get that, look at it in a different translation. Look at it a little bit more closely and start to get a picture of really what it's saying. So here's my paraphrase of what that says. After studying several different versions, this is what I come down to. Job is saying this, I've listened to your advice, but my situation is way more complicated than your platitudes can fix. The hand I've been dealt won't get any easier if I just complain about it more. That's essentially what's going on here. Job's friends have told him, if you just repent, everything's going to be well for you. But he doesn't want to just go, okay, fine, I repent. He doesn't want to just say that. How many times do we just say, okay, I'll repent of that? Because we know we should, we know we're supposed to, but in our heart we're like, I don't know. Job doesn't want to be that guy. He wants to plead his case directly to God because he knows that God will hear him and God will be just with him. Next scripture, Job 23, verses 3 through 5. I'll read it for you. Oh, that I, this is Job speaking. Oh, that I knew how to find him, that I might come to his home. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would tell me. About interesting, another translation note there uh, in the third verse there, 23.3, where he says, that I might come to his home. That word home is a Hebrew word that translates as takuna. That's the, the Hebrew translation, roughly. And it means his seat, or more accurately, it means judgment seat. 
Okay, so picture Job is basically saying, I would love to just approach the bench. That's how we would kind of say it now. He wants to come up and just talk to God directly. He is so confident of his position. He's not afraid of that. I don't need a lawyer. I don't need any fancy work. I just want to tell it to God myself directly because he knows that God's going to listen. Now, he's not hoping for a pardon. Today, we know people who are judged guilty, who end up being guilty, and end up getting a pardon, right? He's not hoping here for the pardon that a guilty man might wish for. He's expecting to be found innocent under the law as he knew it. Now then, I'll talk about that more in a little bit. We think about the idea of a pardon. That's what we have through Jesus. Okay, we have we have Jesus Christ as our intercessor who also atoned for our sins. That's a pardon. Okay, we are guilty. We are judged guilty. And through the blood of Jesus, we are pardoned. But in these days, Job didn't have that. Job lived in a sacrificial system that said, if you sacrifice the right animals at the right time and do the right thing, you're going to be okay. But it was all about, you have to do this this way. The law, even the old covenant law, hadn't even been given yet. That was given to Moses later. So let's talk more about this. This scripture, when we talk about that, his seat or his judgment seat, when Job's talking about that, scripture teaches us that God has essentially set up, there's, there's two seats. First one is the mercy seat. Okay, and the mercy seat was actually a part of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, we read about that in Exodus, so I'll read it to you. Exodus 25, 17. It's instructions on how to do this. And you shall make an atoning cover of pure gold. Again, translations differ on that word atoning cover. Two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. Atoning cover translates as mercy seat. It's the same thing. Let me show you a picture of the, of the ark. Not the actual ark of the covenant, by the way. But this is essentially how it looked. And that area on top, that was called the atoning cover or the mercy seat. Now, when they would have their, their ceremonies, the high priest actually, um, the day of atonement ceremony, the high priest would come in. We call it Yom Kippur today. That's what it's known as. Um, the priest would come in and he would sprinkle blood on that atoning cover, on the mercy seat. And that was the sacrifice that would, that would then gain mercy for us. So that's the mercy seat. There's another seat. It's the judgment seat. The judgment seat belongs to Christ. Okay, and we read about that in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. That's then and there. That's in the end of days when Christ comes to judge everyone. That's the judgment seat, and that belongs to Christ. But Somehow Job has this perception far beyond what his friends knew or really what he had any earthly reason to know that God would find a way and God would be merciful to him in the end. And he gets this new, this new faith, this new rising up of faith inside him. Job 23, 6 and 7 says, Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No, surely he would pay attention to me. There, the upright would argue with him, and I would be free of my judge forever. He's basically saying, would God judge me just because he could? Would he be mean to me just because he can 
No. God would listen to my pleas, and I know he would find me innocent. So now, as again, now we see this giant swelling of faith come up in him. And he begins to see his current sufferings, not as punishment for some wrong that he either has forgotten or didn't realize that happened. His current suffering is not a punishment for that, but it's an issue between himself and God within the bounds of a right relationship with God. I'm in good relationship with God. I know that I'm in the right, and these things are happening to me, so whatever it is is within that relationship. So now i got to figure out how that works. He still doesn't understand that, but he's got this understanding that he may never understand, but he knows he's in the right, and he knows he's good with God. And really, his relief, this resurgence of, of energy that you can almost feel from him, comes from the idea of being okay with the idea that he may never know. How much of us, how many of us would have an easier way navigating through life if we just came to this place where we're like, I trust God and I don't need to understand. I'm okay with the idea that I may never understand. Can many of us really say that? Even I, I can say the words and I can hope, I can pray that I get there, but I still like, I'd still feel better if I understood God. I'm still in that place. So in the next few verses, I'm going to break them down really line by line because Job does this beautiful job of just affirming God's sovereignty and who God is. Now, if you want to write it down, we're gonna, it's Job 23, verses 10 through 12. This is one... This could be a motivational poster on your wall or a devotional if you want to write that down. Job 23, verses 10 through 12. And I'm going to break them down into half verses here. Job 23, 10, the first half. Job says, but he knows the way I take. Okay, what he's saying there is even though I can't see him, God sees me and hasn't forgotten me. God knows what's going on with me. 23, 10, the second half. When he has put me to the test, I will come out as gold. Now, that's huge. Think about what he's saying there. Number one, God's testing me, not punishing me. He's testing me. And Job knows that. Not only that, there's a purpose to it. And there will be an end to it. That's got to be huge for him because I'm suffering, all these things happening. How long is this going to last? Am I just going to die? He knows there's going to be an end, and in the end, God will bring forth something better. All of that is contained in that one line right there, and it's just a great epiphany that he's having. We see that idea several places in Scripture. Isaiah 48.10 says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. It's that idea, the furnace of affliction is what is refining you. And Job is getting this image now like, this is what's happening to me. I'm being refined. It's terrible, yes, but I'm being refined here. There's going to be an end, and God has a point to this. How many of us could get through the sufferings in our life if we knew, number one, there's an end. Number two, there's a point. Number three, you're going to be better off when it's over. If you could just keep that in your mind when you go through a trial, how much easier would life be? We could face anything. But we forget it so quickly. 
Job 23, 11, first half. My foot has held onto his path, meaning I continue to follow you. Despite everything that's going on, I have not stopped following you, God. 23, 11, second half. I have kept his way and not turned aside, meaning I haven't given up on you despite, remember his wife is telling him, just give up. His friends are basically telling him, just give up. He said, I'm not going to do that. And he is held true to that. 23.12, first half, I have not failed the command of his lips, meaning I've done everything you've told me to do, God. Second half, 23.12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. That word treasured is a Hebrew word, soften, not soften, soften. And it basically means to hide away. It's, it's a picture. In those times, especially, you would hide. If you had food, uh, especially food, you would bury it. You wouldn't keep it all out in the open because there were roving bands, especially where he lived, roving bands of, of nomads that would come in and just constantly raid his flocks and his fields. And, and so everybody, if you were wise at all, you would bury a lot of your food so that it was there. You would treasure it. And that's what that word treasured means. You're literally hiding it away because it's life-sustaining and you don't want it to be stolen. And Job is saying, I've hidden your life-sustaining word and I've treasured that more than even my own food. Job goes on to talk about how he, he just realizes this is all part of God's sovereign will. 23, 13 to 14 reads like this. But he is unique, and who can make him turn? Whatever his soul desires, he does it. That unique means he is, he is one. He, is, he is, is like no other. For he carries out what is destined for me, and many such destinies are with him. So he's talking about God has a destiny for him. In fact, God has everybody's destiny in his hands, and he carries that out. And I'm just along for the ride. So what we call now, that's the end basically of chapter 23. (coughs) Excuse me. We go into what, what we call chapter 24. Now chapter divisions are, for the most part, it might even just be where they were writing on a papyrus or a scroll, and that's where that piece ended. And he continues his thought on the next one. We call that chapter 24, but it's just a continuation of his same thought here. And he says this, 24.1. Why are times not stored up by the Almighty, and why do those who know him not see his days? He's continuing that thought from chapter 23, verse 14, but he's adding this idea, I understand that God has all this and he's sovereign, but I really wish he would share his timing with me. (laughs) Yeah, how many of us would say that? Like, okay, I get it. God, you're sovereign. I trust in you, but if you could just let me know how this is going to play out, that'd be great. We all say that. So circling back now to Job's argument that God doesn't always punish the wicked. Remember, he says this. He says, he says, look, I know what you're saying. He punishes the wicked, rewards the good. But I can show you how in life we see that that's not always true. We see plenty of wicked people that look like they're living long and happy and prosperous lives. How does that happen? And this is Job challenging his friend's contention. So Job 21 this is verse 7, 9, and 13. I'll just, <coughs> excuse me. He says this, Why do the wicked still live, grow old, and also become very powerful? Their houses are safe from fear. That's verse 9. 
and the rod of God is not on them. Verse 13, they spend their days in prosperity. He's saying, okay, I understand this whole idea of sin and you'll be punished, do the right thing and you'll be prospered, but we know that doesn't work. And he's just saying, he's not necessarily asking God, he's just saying, tell me then, why do we see it work in this way all the time? So you might be, at this point, you might be kind of excused for thinking Job is a little schizophrenic, a little back and forth. I trust you, but then I don't understand, and then I do, and then I don't. But he goes in now, the next several verses, he lists off all these things that evil men do and somehow don't seem to be punished by God. Job 24.2, people remove landmarks, they seize and devour flocks. A quick note on that, like you're like, huh, they remove landmarks. What that means, back in those days, you would have a landmark, just a pile of stones sometimes or a tree. And you would say, my property goes from that tree to that pile of stones to that stump over there and to this wall. That's my property. And that's the only way you knew it. They didn't survey things like this. They had landmarks. But evil people, in the middle of the night, in the dark, they would get out and they would move these landmarks. They would sometimes take a pile of stones and rebuild it on a hill, claiming that land now, moving it, and all of a sudden seize and devour a flock. Now your sheep are now on my land because I moved the landmark in the middle of the night. This was a common thing that was done back then. Going on, 20, chapter 24, verses 3 through 11, kind of read like this. I'll just read it off to you. Here are the things evil men do. They drive away donkeys of orphans. They seize the widow's ox as a pledge, meaning they take it as a security for a loan and don't give it back. They push the needy aside from the road, running them off the road as they're, as they're walking. The poor of the land have to hide themselves together. Behold, like wild donkeys in the wilderness, they go out scavenging for food. And This is the poor people, the downtrodden. They go out scavenging for food as bread for their children in the desert. They harvest, their feed in the, they harvest their feed in the field and glean the vineyard of the wicked. Meaning all they do, they just go feed off the scraps, whatever's left in the fields, is all these downtrodden people. They spend the night naked without clothing and have no covering against the cold. They are wet from the mountain rains and they hug the rock for lack of a shelter. Others snatch an orphan from the breast and they seize it as a pledge against the poor. The poor move about naked without clothing, and they carry sheaves while going hungry. Within the walls, they produce oil. They tread wine presses, but go thirsty. In other words, they do all the work, but they don't get to enjoy any of it. And this is the, this is the wicked, evil people who clearly are preying on the downtrodden, whether it's employees or slaves or just people that they take advantage of. And yet, somehow, we don't see them being punished often. Job trusts in God with all his heart, but he still struggles with the why of all this. He knows that God is sovereign, but he still wants to make sense of it all. Job 24, 12. From the city, people groan, and the souls of the wounded cry for help. Yet God does not pay attention to the offensiveness. That's more of a thought there. It's not like God ignores it and God doesn't care. Job is saying, from my perspective, I don't see anything happening here. Things they would be punished for in a human court, God's not doing anything about. Now, verses 13 to 23, really, 
Job just lists more things that wicked men do. Again, seemingly with no judgment here. And he can just see his struggle like, I know God's good. I trust him. I trust him 100%. But look at all these things that happen, and there's no punishment. They rebel against, he's basically just thinking out loud here. They rebel against the light. The murderer kills the poor and the needy by day, and at night he's like a thief. The adulterer sneaks around in the dark saying, no eye will see me. He wrongs the infertile woman and does no good for the widow. He drags off the mighty by his power. He rises, but no one has assurance of life. Meaning when, when these wicked people are in town, there's nobody who's safe. That's what he's talking about here. Even with all this, though, God somehow still lets them live, still lets them prosper in some cases. Job 24, 23, he provides them with security. He's talking about the wicked people here. He provides them. He, God, provides them with security, and they're supported. And his eyes are on their ways, meaning God's well aware of their deeds. He sees everything, and yet they're well fed. They're protected. Why? Job knows, though, in his heart. He knows at some point in God's timing, there will be justice. Job 24, verse 24 they're exalted a little while, meaning they'll, they'll be raised up and prosper. Then they are gone. Moreover, they are brought low, and like everything, they're gathered up like the heads of grain they wither. He's talking about a harvest there. They'll just be harvested up and just chucked in the fire like everything else. Then he finishes this chapter, verse 24, or Job 24, verse 24. Now if it is not so, who can prove me a liar and make my speech worthless? He's saying, if what I've just said isn't true, prove it. Who can? And none of these guys can. So that's it for the scripture. That's it for the book. Let's make some sense to all this. What are we supposed to take away from these two chapters? What can we take away? Number one, take away, trials will come your way in life. Yay. That's my big takeaway. Pastor said, life's going to (laughs) suck. All right. Join me at church next week. If you know in your heart, like Job did, that you're pursuing God and doing the best you can, you're not sinless, you're not perfect, but like Job, you're doing the best you can to live your life according to the teachings of Jesus. If you're living your life like that, then you can have these assurances. Luke 10, verse 27. They ask Jesus what the greatest commandment is, and he says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your your soul and all your strength and with your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So if you're living your life according to that and all the other teachings of Jesus and doing the best you can, to navigate this life. We can have an assurance then when trials come your way, it's not because we have caused them. It might just be that God is refining you. Like Job, if you can remain in that place of blamelessness, not sin, blameless, God can and will take your pain, take your trials, take your suffering, and use it to refine you, to train you, to prepare you for the blessing that's greater than you can ever imagine. We see, if you stick with us, when we get to the end of Job um, here shortly, God restores him and then some. 
for his perseverance through this trial. God will do that and promises that he will. But that assurance only comes if you remain in the will of God and do the best that you can because then you know, you know that you're in the right, you know that you're blameless, and the attacks and the lies and the schemes of the enemy don't have a place to land if we don't give him that ammunition. So there's this common saying. We've all heard some version of it saying, only precious metals get put through the refiner's fire. Gold, silver, all the precious metals go through this fire of being refined. And I would, I would propose that if you're being refined, it's because God loves you enough to shape you into something better than you could ever be on your own. If you're being refined, if you're in that fire, you are being transformed into something that will glorify its creator because that's what we're here for. We are here to glorify God and to give glory to God. Peter says it much, much later than, than Job, obviously. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. It's like, don't, this isn't new. This isn't different. Don't let it surprise you that something's bad, something bad's happening to you. Verse 13, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. We can only do that if we are rock solid in what we know to be our relationship with God. There's a Christian songwriter, his name is Brian Dirksen, I think I've pronounced it right, all the way back in 1990. Seems like a long time ago. He wrote this song called The Refiner's Fire. Some of you might know it. I want to give you some lyrics. When I read these lyrics, it stirred something in my heart. And I've been praying this over, over myself. It says this. Got it up on the screen. I think we do. There burns a fire with, a, with sacred heat, white hot with holy flame. And all who dare pass through its blaze will not emerge the same. Same as bronze and some as, some as bronze and some as silver, some as gold. Then with great skill, all are hammered by their sufferings on the anvil of his will. The refiner's fire has now become my soul's desire. Purged and cleansed and purified that the Lord will be glorified. He is consuming my soul, refining me, making me whole. No matter what I may lose, I choose the refiner's fire. Church, it's not about, it's not the refining process that we should seek, but it's the result that it produces. That's what we should have joy in. Not in the, in the walk through the valley, but knowing that it ends and it will end if we keep to his path, it will end the way he ordains it to end. So if you're in the process of being refined, I want to challenge you this. Look for what's being stripped away. People say, I'm going through this terrible time in my life. Look at what's being stripped away. Look at what's being refined. Because that's what refining in a crucible is. You heat it to the point where the impurities leave. That's what it is. So look at any trial you go through. Look at what's being stripped and ask yourself, is this something that I have placed there that God didn't intend for me? 
Are there things I'm counting on that suddenly I can't anymore and now I need to rely on him? That's what the refiner's fire does. So like Job teaches us, our our human need for understanding really just complicates that process. If we can get out of the way and get to this place where we can truly say in our heart, God, I trust you completely and without reservation, the reward for that is going to be peace, no matter the fire, no matter the trial that we face. And the result of that will be to glorify God in everything that we do. And that, church, that's our high calling as followers of Jesus Christ. Not only for ourselves, but to show that and reflect that to the world. Let's pray. Father, it's hard for me to even pray the words, thank you for the trials that I go through. But Lord, I trust you, and I trust that you will use those things for my good. You promise that over and over again, and so Lord, help me to see that promise. Help me to see the refining, the refiner's fire, the trials that we go through. Help me to see them as you see them, taking us to a place where we are higher, more pure, And we can reflect your glory more than we ever could on our own. Help us to see every trial that we face in that way as an opportunity to be molded, shaped, and refined into something that gives you glory. Not simply something to overcome, something to learn from, to grow from, and to be refined through. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the opportunity to grow every single day into the image of Christ. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, guys, we're going to take communion together now. If you're out there at home, grab some supplies. I don't care if it's a bagel that you're in the middle of or pizza from last night. It's not the substance of what it is, what it represents. If you're here new in the back, we have the table with the little individual cups. Grab one of those. And we invite you If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, we celebrate that through communion. If you haven't and you're not in that place, I want to invite you to make that decision because he calls out to you. He gave it for you. Those who have accepted him, those who have not, those who will accept him, he gave himself on the cross for all of us. And it's simply our accepting what he has done that gives us not only eternal life, but reconciliation with the Father. And if you want to take that, take the body, body of Christ broken for you. And the blood of Christ shed on the cross for you. Again, shed for those who would accept him, shed for those who wouldn't. But to give all the opportunity to be reconciled to the Father through his blood. Take the blood. Father, we praise you this day and every day. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for refining us.